Welcome to Witch City Witches, a podcast from Salem, Massachusetts, exploring the practice of witchcraft. I'm Anna. And I am Becca, and we are here today with my friend Oracle Hakatios, author of Strixcraft, Ancient Greek Magic for the Modern Witch. Thank you for joining us today. Absolutely. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for, uh, for hosting and welcoming me onto your, onto your podcast. So I know Oracle because we are both moderators on a Facebook group for Hellenic Paganism. So that's how I became familiar with this book. It's not has it's just came out recently, right? October. October, right. So yeah, congratulations on that. I know uh, I've never I've never written a book myself. Anna has. Um, so it's a I it's a lot of work because I've certainly tried. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Well, congratulations and thank you for coming on here to talk to us. Um, and we're going to start off with you know, the question that we ask all our guests, which is, do you consider yourself a witch? And what does that mean to you? I do consider myself a witch. <laughs> As a matter of fact, um, I, I do presentations sometimes for a local unity ministry um, where I do lectures and stuff on different topics. And <laughs> they introduced me as the Wiccan. It's a, to them, it's a safe word. Mm-hmm. But in one podcast, I said, I'm a Wiccan. That means I'm a witch. And everybody just left the room. Like people were just gone. <laughs> like Wiccan was safe for them. But when I said I'm a witch, it was automatically like, what are we doing <laughs> listening to this person? It, it rectified itself with subsequent podcast, with subsequent presentations. But yeah, it was, yeah. Um, <laughs> wow. But I'm a witch. And what does that mean to me? Well, I always go to the root of the word, uh, witch obviously in the Anglo-Saxon witche or witcha is male or female sorcerer. It's a sorcerer, mm-hmm. one who um, practices sorcery. And at that time it was divination skills, herbal skills for the tribes, not prehistoric stone age tribes. I'm talking about like specifically like the Germanic Anglo-Saxons and the Danes and others. Different people had different names for their spirit walkers. I don't say the word shaman. I say the word spirit walker. I think it's much more accurate to depict and not take away from indigenous people. Um, mm-hmm. I digress. Uh, witchcraft <laughs> to me is a craft. It is something that you do, but it is tied with re- religion in some form or fashion. It is tied to your the, the spirits and the honoring of the spirits around you. So I take it from that perspective. So that's mm-hmm. what witch means to me, witchcraft means to me. It's a craft, but it is tied in with spiritual walking. And so what would you consider your religion if you consider yourself as having a religion? I am religious. I used to say the word spiritual many years ago because that's what everybody was saying. I'm not religious, I'm spiritual, which to me made sense coming from a Christian background, you know, organized religion. But since many years ago, I became comfortable with the word religion. I felt, you know, words have power. And we need to be able to claim some words back and not be afraid of them. So my religion is multitudinous. I am a witch. I'm an initiated Wiccan. Um, I am a Hellenic polytheist. You know, for me, religion is not just one thing. It's not a monocle. It's a plethora, a kaleidoscope. So I... I don't have a one single label that would encompass everything without some kind of contradiction. I did for a while call myself a neo-pagan polytheist to make it a little bit more um, accurate, quote unquote, accurate general, <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah. But my, my, religion is, um, my religion is tied to the spirits. I'm a, I guess I'm a spirit walker is how I would describe myself. I mean, that's the best way I can term it without using other words, so. It's still a journey because I'm so much, I'm a part of so much that has fed into my spirituality. So you mentioned, uh, you mentioned your Christian background and you talk about this a little bit in the foreword of your book. And it's a really fascinating journey that you've been on. And I know that a lot of our listeners are trying to make a transition from being raised in a strict Christian background and realizing that it's not working for them and trying to, you know, find their way to some form of witchcraft or paganism or polytheism. And I'd love to kind of hear a little bit more about that. Sure. Uh, well, actually, up until I was 13, we really, we I mean, we went to the Catholic Church. Well, my father didn't, but he didn't believe in it. But we did a Mexican-American. That's what, you know, you do. You go to Catholic, you go to mass on Sundays. But culturally, 
I was, you know, my, my mother, my grandmother was a curandera. She was a folk healer, a Catholic folk healer. And my mother was a Santera and the Santeria religion. And my father was very open with different new age topics. We had a, our, our library was very occultish in certain aspects. You know, we had books on Edgar Casey, Helena Blavatsky. We had books on UFOs, hauntings, reincarnation, you name it. So this fed early on, these were seeds that were planted early on in my mind about the widespread of, of religious uh, paths. But when I was 13, my mother converted to a holiness Pentecostal church. And it was from an old denomination here in the United States, primarily African-American majority, old Pentecostal apostolic movement. So I converted with her, I was born again, saved. And I uh, quickly uh, was raised up because, okay, let me backtrack here and you'll have to excuse me as I gather my thoughts. In the Holiness Pentecostal churches, if you have some kind of intelligence, uh, some kind of memory skill, or, or you're just, you know, your mind is just able to absorb information at a faster rate and you have great skills, you, you are told you're, you're going to be a preacher. Even if you're not going to be a preacher, <laughs> you're told he's going to be a preacher. That's their way of communicating that this is a very gifted individual. So they said that about me. And this is a fascinating journey. I'm just going to say it in brief. Later on, I had two independent ministers who did not know each other prophesy that I would be a, a televangelist, believe it or not. So I was already being groomed <laughs> for being a televangelist at, a, at one time I was 15. That's what everyone wanted me to do. That's what they expected of me. I was quickly brought into the ministry as a young minister. And I wasn't licensed or ordained yet. I couldn't do that till I was 18. And that's what they expected of me. So a lot of opportunities that were coming my way, I was like, no, I'm going to be a minister. I'm going to be a minister. I'm going to be a minister. So I, I, was, I was ordained when I was 18. And later I became licensed through a different church. And so I became a minister. That's what happened. I became a minister. You know, that, that was my journey. That's how I became a minister. And then, so at some point you decided that being a Christian minister was not your path. And so how, how did you, how did you make that transition? Well, I almost converted to Judaism. I was studying the Bible through the, uh, through the languages and I was looking for Judaism. But as I went back further and I discovered the divine feminine that's what led me into neo-paganism eventually was the idea that there was this sacred feminine side that was missing in our society, missing in religion. So one of the questions I wanted to ask you, the name that you wrote this book under and that you use for your Strix craft tradition, Oracle Hakatios, is a magical name. It's a religious name. And I believe you're our first guest who hasn't used their legal name in their public magical workings. I would love to hear both why you choose to use a religious name in your public workings and also how you came about choosing a name. Sure. I use my, my magical moniker because I want to protect my identity when it comes to public works. I, even though openly on my pages, I am who I am, when it comes to public speaking, public works, I just wasn't comfortable with it. I needed people to understand who I was, especially because in the craft community, my name is known more as Oracle than it is with my legal name. So I was more, I'm more familiar in the community with that name than I am my legal name in many yeah. respects. So similar, but you know, for this podcast, I don't use my last name. I use Rebecca Heather, which is my first and middle name. I've mentioned on the podcast before what my last name is, but I don't want it to come up in Google searches when people are looking for a web designer. <laughs> so um, I definitely understand that perspective. I just let the weird all hang out. I, you know, I used to try and keep identity separate and I just got to a point where I said, you know what, I'm done. <laughs> I think, you know, the name Oracle Hecatios uh, is fairly straightforward. It implies that you are an Oracle of Hecate, but... Other than more as a title, how did you arrive at that as a name that you wanted to be addressed as? I had been searching for a name that, for me, name encompasses what I want to be. And I couldn't find one. I knew I had great 
from the church, prophetic abilities were there, but I didn't know how to utilize it in this new religion that I picked or that I found. So one night I'm, I'm meditating after searching for so long. I mean, it took a while. And Hecate actually, Hecate actually gave me the name. I, it floated right across my eyes. And I was like, okay, all right, I can, I can do that. And so I became comfortable. But I learned later on, you have to be careful with a magical name because you will grow into that role. Like if you call yourself Rowan, for example, you the characteristics of a Rowan tree, whatever it may be, will you will take those on. You know, I mean, it's it's your name. Names have power. So I had to be very. So I found, oh, I'm an oracle, and then I was like, oh no, I am an oracle. Oh geez. <laughs> so it was. <laughs> it was well, uh, with great power comes great responsibility. Pretty much, and then the trials that I went through afterwards to. Sh- proved and get tested. I was like, oh no, <laughs> why did I choose this name? Why did this name come to me? You know, but it's there. So you have written a book called Strixcraft, but this is actually based on a tradition that you started. Correct. So you mentioned that you were an, um, uh, initiated Wiccan. So how did you, I guess there's a lot of people who um, who write to us and they're brand new and they're looking for a group or they're practicing solitary and they don't like, you know, what's the next step? So Anna is also initiated into a tradition. I am not, but how, what was your journey to find the group that you became initiated with? And then, you know, from there founding your own path with Strixcraft, how, what was that journey like for you? You know, I'm, I'm initiated to several traditions, um, and the first one was Druidry, the Druid tradition, the Order of Bards, Obates, and Druids, to be exact. Mm-hmm. And then the second one was the Druid Order of Naturalists. And through Druidry, I made peace with Christianity, made peace with myself, and learned about the Earth and the Divine Feminine. You know, it kind of answered a call that I needed at that time to understand ecology and how neo-paganism works. But I want to say that the spirits really led me to those traditions. When I was looking to be a part of a Gardnerian Wiccan tradition, there were blockages. But then I had a vision of a man by the name of Alex Sanders, who I did not know at the time was actually the founder of the Alexandrian tradition of Wicca. And he appeared to me and we were in this room of his with chairs and there was a table between us and we were having tea. And he was talking to me about certain things. And he told me he was, I had to come to him. So I, years and years passed by before I found an Alexandrian coven nearby. And I became initiated into that tradition. So it was really a spiritual walk. It's really a spiritual walk into the mysteries. Um, people think of one thing, but when you're entering a mystery tradition, it really does have to be a calling to that tradition. I believe it's your family, you're coming home. You're coming home to your to your family, but the spirits really have to be the ones that guide you. So is Strixcraft, so obviously it's based on Greek magic in some points, but you also pull on some of that Alexandrian training in it as well, it seems. It's like, it's not a direct descendant, but it is flavored a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, is that, is Strixcraft something that you do separate from your Alexandrian work or is it, how does that work? It is separate. As a matter of fact, it was actually formed before I became Alexandrian. Oh, interesting. Yes. I didn't become Alexandrian until 2016. And I formulated the Strixcraft tradition uh, firmly in 2012. And so uh, people are like, oh, it's a Wiccan flavor. And I'm like, well, that I, I had no idea about that part, you know, the structure and everything, you know, and you don't realize it till later on, obviously. But I have had people give me comment, oh, this, I can see some kind of Wiccan in there. And I'm like, really? And then I look at it, I'm like, oh, I guess there is. So <laughs> my main goal was to translate magic into and bring ancient Greek magic alive. And if there's a structure that seems to be familiar to people, 
maybe that's what they, you know, for them, it makes it easier to translate certain concepts into what they're familiar with. That's the best way I can put it as to why maybe there's a, because it wasn't a conscious thought when I was writing the book. Or it's some like deeper, farther in the past thing that both things or streams are tapping into. Yeah, I mean, that's a theme that we see, you know, a lot when it comes to esoteric traditions. It's that idea that commonalities emerge even when things are happening in isolation, right? Earlier, you mentioned the term shaman and you know, I am a shamanic practitioner, and that's the thing that I've talked about, right? The idea of air quotes, Western shamanism is, you know, sort of a fabricated term that came out of the work of Michael Harner, right? Of looking at what mm -hmm. all these different practicing groups were doing and noticing that there were common elements. But that's kind of the whole point is that folks that were practicing in Siberia were doing things that are similar to what North American indigenous folks are doing. And so he created the umbrella term, you know, shamanism. So it doesn't really surprise me that when you're trying to reveal systems for interacting with the divine that you would come up with something that isn't completely different from what's already out there because it's spirit really telling us how they want to be communicated with. This is, uh, this is truth. Yeah. You have a lot of valid points, you know, and, and like, or you two were saying about the, you know, there is a commonality or there's streams. I can see that because when I was doing, when I was putting together this uh, craft, this, this tradition, I looked at a lot of ancient sources. Later on as an Alexandrian or as a Wiccan, I, I would speak about Hellenic polytheism in, in my circles, in my circles. And the witches around me were, you know, eyebrow raised. They were like, really? So, and I was like, well, it's a mystery tradition. So it's inevitable that the mysteries would pass on from ancient times till now in different, in different forms. But that energy current, that, that esoteric current, it's going to manifest differently in modern times in some form or fashion around the world. You know, I mean, at the heart of it, it's it's about your initiation to the spirits is how I see it. And uh, for our, our listeners who might not be familiar with the terminology, what's a mystery tradition? A mystery tradition is a path wherein you experience the gods and the spirits of a particular path. They call you. It is very much learning, uh, calling and learning how to be a spirit walker in certain forms or facets. And it can only be experienced. The really, a definition is really enigmatic because there is no way to really define what is a tradition that has a mystery or enigmatic or esoteric component to it. It can only be, you can only experience it. You can't write it down. There, there is nothing doctrinal about it. There's no way to tell you how to think. You have to be able to formulate your own mind, your own conscience when you're experiencing these esoteric qualities about a tradition. Yeah, that's something that in my book I refer to as um, systems of direct revelation where you are, you know, you as the participant of the, the religious rite or the experience, you know, you have that, that experience yourself. You're not there to witness creature have it for you. It has to be direct revelation, not, you know, through someone else. Yeah, exactly. You are your own priest, priestess in the direct exactly. revelation traditions. Exactly. And that actually leads me to another question that I had from your book. Uh, you know, in the in the early chapters, you're talking about how Strixcraft, you know, works based on your alliance to the gods and your relationship with them. And so my question for you is, you know, is Strixcraft something that exists only within the framework of a Hellenic pantheon? Or can you take what you learn in Strixcraft and use it with other pantheons? Both. I believe Strixcraft is rooted in Hellenic formats. But because Hellenism was so diverse throughout the ancient world, depending on where it landed, whether it was Southern Italy, Sicily, India, wherever it may have landed, it can manifest differently. Different. I don't like to use the word pantheon because that was an invention, invented word by a lot in the 17th, 18th centuries, I believe, by a lot of early archaeologists, anthropologists who were trying to make neat and nice little boxes for cultures. And the theory at that time was that no culture had ever shared anything. They were all separate. But through modern understandings, we know that cultures share bits and pieces of themselves and none could be truer than Hellenism. 
um, in its expanse into Egypt, Rome, wherever you, wherever it, it flourished. So it definitely can be manifested in various ways. So that, that's actually something that comes up a lot in the online forums that you and I are both in, that um, people talking about, you know, is it okay if I practice, you know, Hellenic paganism or polytheism, like I'm not Greek. And like, most of us aren't. You mentioned that, you, you know, you're a Mexican American. My background is from various parts of Europe, you know, Ireland, England, Portugal, France. But the fact is that, I mean, from my background, like, my great, my far past ancestors had access to Hellenic temples because Hellenic paganism was this worldwide religion that spread themselves. They went out and said, hey, look at these gods, we're going to build a temple. And there are temples in, you know, there are temples found archaeologically in England. There are, you mentioned India, there are statues of Hercules hanging out with the Buddha from South mm-hmm. Asia. Like, you know, there are temples in Africa. Mm-hmm. It was really a worldwide religion. So, and I will say just straight up, there's a lot of problems with racism in the group, or not in the group that we're in because we ban those people real quick. Um, but in the larger Hellenic space, that's a real problem that you know that started with um, in, in pagan spaces. It first seemed to crop up with Northern European traditions. You know, it's really spread out, and it's it's quite it's quite upsetting. <laughs> Very much so. Yes. Yeah, I agree. There's there's been a lot that I mean, like you said, we've banned uh, these people, but they crop up everywhere. You know, they're like moles that you try to hammer down in that game. You know, and they just <laughs> yeah, keep popping up. It's it's a disease in our communities, is what it is. So that's why in the book I write, you don't have to be Greek to practice this. This is an open f- religious tradition that you can do no matter what your background is. And I guess it occurs to me that, you know, we've been talking for a while, but we haven't really told our listeners what is, uh, you know, Strixcraft. Uh, we, we know that from the subtitle of your book that is Ancient Greek Magic for the Modern Witch. But can you expand on that definition a bit? Sure. Strixcraft, Strix is the root of the word um, strega or strig in other languages. And it means screech owl. It refers to a screech owl. And the cries of the Thessalian Strix in fables and legends was that they cried like a screech owl in their in their in their uh, cries and in their chants. So it really is tapping into that energy and adopting this this archetype. And I, I hate the word archetype, but in this sense, what I mean is adopting that symbolism and bringing it down into modern days and saying, you know, we are people of the screech owl. We are people who are dedicated to the underworld gods, to the Catholic deities, to to Hecate. And so Strix craft is the craft of the Strix. It is the craft of the screech owl. It is the craft of the the night people of, of Hecate. I just want to say, um, you switching the pronunciation, and I just want to say to people that Hecate is the modern American English way of pronouncing the goddess's name. Akate is closer to the ancient yeah. form, and many followers of her, of which I am one, try to use one or the other depending on who's listening. But if if you're wondering why the pronunciation is different, it's it's the same name. It's just one of them is more easily understood by modern American English audiences. Yeah, well, that actually kind of segues into my next question, which I hear uh, might be a um, controversial question, but one of the things that you talk about in your in your book is that a lot of Hellenic Reconstructionists avoid magic, and you know, you're posing that it's actually very common. And, you know, I am not a Hellenic practitioner, so now I know that I'm asking a little bit as an outsider, but can you talk a bit about that, that sort of hesitation to use magic and, you know, where that comes from and I guess where you're, you're seeing that that's not accurate as far as what the practice was and I guess see where this can of worms that I might be opening is going. It's fine. It, it's been a can of worms that's been open for a long time in the Hellenic community, <clears throat> so it's not new. Hellenic Reconstructionists or Reconstructionists almost of any faith try to stay away from magic. When they think of magic, they think of Wicca. Uh, They're like, oh, those Wiccans, those witches, you know, they try to use the gods. They try to, 
bind the gods in like the golden dawn practice or like other esoteric orders practiced you know and to them the gods cannot be bound you can't you can't just take from the gods and they consider magic to be hubris that is you're equating yourself to a god so therefore you're bringing wrath down upon your life um it's a hubris is a very big topic but what can what's considered hubris is is up for debate depending on which aisle you're on i don't consider it hubris i don't consider you that you are saying that you're a god just because you're using magic as i say in the book there's different manifestations of magic there's purifiers exorcists there are people who um work with spirits what i call devotional witchcraft and this has been common in ancient times it still is common if you go to southern italy and sicily or anywhere in the world people use magical techniques to get things done and they will petition spirits, gods, saints, heroes, and they will work them. I, there are lead tablets that have inscribed on them uh, deities like, like Hecate, like Persephone, like Hades, who are, they're told, please curse this person, please do this, do that, you know, and they bury the tablet because they feel that if they bury the tablet, then it's going to get to them faster. And if, and it'll basically force them to do something to force their hand. Well, this is common. Gods, are, you just don't petition gods. There's not just worship and devotional, but that's a big part of my path. It's okay if you're going to argue with a deity. <laughs> um, it's okay if you're going to talk. It's very controversial, but it is something that's very common today, very common in ancient times. You can't escape it. It's a disservice to our ancestors if you do to call them hubristic just because they did something, but you're not going to. It doesn't make any sense to me because then you're just stepping on your own ancestors and what they did to survive. I find like there's there's so there's a lot of different. The idea of reconstructed religions are often very problematic because they are trying to reconstruct something that existed in a specific time, in a specific place, with a specific culture surrounding it. Yes. And so you can't say that you are reconstructing the paganism of Alexander the Great because you are not living in his culture. The Everything about your life is different. So there's this, there's this idea with a lot of reconstructionists that anything past X date and that date will differ depending on who you're talking to is invalid. But as you say, plenty of things before that date are also invalid if they happen to conflict with your worldview. Um, and when I first, I think I first got involved with the Hellenic pagan community when it was a Yahoo group, like more than 20 years ago. Um, I still have some of those email transcripts somewhere. Um, but the Reconstructionists were all, I did not get along with them. They were very, they're basically pagan fundamentalists when mm -hmm. like when you come down to it. And I, I did not get along with them. A lot of people now when they're trying to have a faith that feels more authentic to ancient times and not be so much, because my faith is a very modern faith with ancient gods. But a lot of people are now using the term revivalist, which mm -hmm. is, you know, trying to not be rigid like a reconstructionist, because that can be very much like ska. It's like, you know, it's very, it's play acting. It's more than yeah. anything else. Although I believe that their devotion is real, the trappings of it become much more important, it feels like, than the faith, at least to an outsider. But I think, you know, that the term of revivalist is trying to be more of a blend between the old and the new. Um, mm -hmm. I also don't call myself a revivalist, but I think that a lot of people who are trying to get away from that rigidity of reconstructionism, and it doesn't just exist in Hellenic terms, like there are there are Druids that are reconstructionists, there are Asatru that are reconstructionists, and that's where you find a lot of the very white right-wing political beliefs, you find a lot of the, you have to be of this ethnicity to practice. There's a lot of that in the more reconstruction field. So it's not just magic that they're against. They're against all sorts of things. Yes. Um, I remember 
15 years ago, maybe getting an argument with someone who said that they were all, they were politically right wing and they were saying that Hellenic paganism, pagans should be against abortion because they didn't think that, Hel that Hera would approve. And it's just like, there are accounts of people leaving three-year-olds out to die in a cliff. Like I'm pretty sure like killing something in the womb would be not, like that's that's not really a problem. Like <laughs> that's that's would be normal. Um, not that abandoning children was common. I think there's a lot of stories that make it seem like it was much more common and it made it into myth, but it happened occasionally, but there weren't laws against it and there weren't religious laws against it either. People will take their modern viewpoint and try to find something in the past or find just make something up like saying oh Hera wouldn't like that well why not <laughs> and to just I mean that's that what seems like hubris to me to presume <laughs> to say what a deity would or wouldn't like but <laughs> I mean yes that's like the, the literal translation of it but yeah, so I think that there's a lot of people who call themselves reconstructionists and who make rules like you can't practice magic or you have to have this particular political viewpoint and it's because of religion. And it's not because of religion at all. It's because that's your viewpoint and you want something to cudgel someone else with. And it's, you know, obviously it happens in Christianity all the time. It, it's just people use religion to try to influence other people rather than just experiencing the religion and I've gone off on a topic on a on a tangent here but <laughs> yeah, I'm just thinking to myself I'm like this seems like a very appropriate uh, tangent for a hierophant year but. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know it really is and to to go on top of what you're saying you know to follow up I have found you know there are Celtic reconstructionists who will not allow you to practice unless you have some kind of Celtic blood, which is really weird to say, and it's considering they were tribes everywhere, and you you don't, and you have to speak Gaelic, you have to speak the language. Which Gaelic? Exactly, which Gaelic? <laughs> I, I don't, I have no idea, but that's what they say. And I came into clash with them many years ago when I was practicing Druidry, and they were telling me that my path was false because Druids exist no more. And I was telling them, I said, I know they don't, but they do now because there's a group of people who have decided to take on the spiritual part of what it meant to be a Druid to these people and try to pull from different sources and, and try to build a new spirituality using that form. It happens all the time. You know, when people are trying to formulate a spiritual path, you're going to look at something and say, you know, that sounds good. And if it works, you're going to continue using it and you're going to build on upon it. And that's where Strixcraft initially originates is this idea that there are Strix which exist in our modern day world. Some are more, have a penchant for, uh, call themselves Thessalian Strix. I just call ourselves the Strix, you know, or in my temple, we are called the Orphic Strix. But Strixcraft itself, borrows from that symbolism, from that owl, from those witches that were able to draw down the moon. That's that's what we have. So you've written this book. What are you hoping people get out of this book? I am hoping people understand three things. The first one is that magic existed very commonly in the ancient world and that they can, two, utilize these tools for their benefit in this world, that these practices are legitimate and they are there to be used. And then the third one is to bring them closer to the gods, to bring them closer to the spirits, to practice devotional witchcraft so that they understand it's not just about altars and shrines or altars and tools and shrines. It's also about connection and developing a relationship with your deity, with the gods and with the spirits that, that call you to this path. Those are the three things I'm hoping that people get out of this book. Yeah, I think that sometimes we get so caught up in, in and I say we as collective humanity, in trying to get people to fit into labels for religion. And we forget that really the goal, the goal of everything that we're doing is connection with the divine, right? It's connection with spirit. And the idea that any practice was completely isolated uh, is is absurd. I mean, even looking at you know, Judaism, which you mentioned earlier, was something that you explored. You know, there have been 
accounts and documentations and findings that show that you know Judaism was in parts of Africa and that there are African tribes that have a lot of ancient you know Judaic practices that are completely disconnected from what modern day Judaism is. And you know you'll get into racism components as well because you see you know these tribes that are very much dark skinned African tribes that don't look like what you would expect you know a modern day Judaism practitioner to look like and it gets back into that whole loop of uh, you know spirituality has common elements everywhere and unfortunately racists are also everywhere. Yeah. Yeah, I think also you know we've talked about cultural appropriation before, and I think one thing that has to be brought up is that cultures have been borrowing from each other for as long as people have existed. That you talk to your neighbor, they have a good idea, you say, hey, maybe I can do that too. As your ability to talk to neighbors farther and farther away, you get picking up more and more ideas. And the issue I think that it comes from is one, is it a closed or an open practice? And as you mentioned before, Hellenic paganism is an open practice. Strixcraft, your path, you're writing a book about it. Obviously, it is open in, you know, in what you've published. So borrowing something from a practice that is an open practice, there's not any issue from that. You know, like, I mean, a lot of Christian religions, they are open. Like anyone can just show up and participate. And if you want to borrow something from that practice, you know, that's not cultural appropriation, especially if it is the, you know, if you're borrowing a Catholic tradition, the Catholics aren't hurting because of that. <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. the issue with cultural appropriation comes from um, the dominant culture taking from cultures that are in the minority and making it their own. And then the minority culture you know, it's taken away from them. Or if, you know, in religion, that's one thing, but also with like artwork and stuff that it's fine if you buy something from a, you know, an indigenous craftsperson wherever you're visiting, that's good. You're supporting an artist. It's not good if you go to the mall and you buy something that looks like something that could have been done because it depends on where you're coming from that, like I know when a local museum had an exhibit on Japanese art and they had a, they had set up a thing that you could try on a kimono and get your photograph taken and stuff. And local Japanese communities were very upset about this, that, you know, you're literally using our culture as a, as a costume, but people in Japan that had helped set this up and had like donated the kimonos were like, what's the big deal? Yeah, we let people try on kimonos all the time because Japanese culture is the dominant culture in Japan and like they're not threatened at all, but Asians are discriminated against in the US and it's totally different in this context. So I think that when people talk about borrowing from religions and mixing things and what is appropriate, there's a lot of things that you need to take into consideration with the context. And first of all is, was that, was it open? Were you allowed to use it in the first place? Right. I mean, it all has to do with power structures and systemic prejudice and oppression. And like you said, you know, that depends on the context. And one thing that I talk a lot about, you know, I am Brazilian, I am a Latina, uh, I am pretty heavily white presenting and I've become very aware of how fluid the idea of privilege is and how contextual it is because back home in Brazil, I have a lot more light skin privilege than I do here in the US where I am a you know, queer Latina immigrant who does not always pass for white and that very much changes and that speaks to what you were talking about, you know, the cultural context and even speaking to Japan, you know, I lived part of my life in Japan, I got to go back and visit and you know, while I was there I was invited to festivals and you know, local Japanese folks were very happy to, you know, dress me up for the festival and teach me their dances but you know this was me in their space. And doing my best to honor everything that they were offering me, but that doesn't mean that now I get to come here and be like, hey, look what I learned there and, you know, put these, these clothes on and try and pass that along because that's not what that, trend, you know, well, that's not what that interaction was about. Yeah, that's very true. I mean, as a Mexican-American, there's Cinco de Mayo, a very popular holiday here in the United States where people get a chance to drink and have fun and, uh, you know, enjoy Mexican culture. And for a lot of Mexicans here in the United States, many of them are not threatened by it. They're like, well, we all party, nice to share our culture. The, the problem is, is that when they're discriminated against, but people only want to take what they can give. 
Right. You know, and, and that's a huge issue. So Cinco de Mayo is, is nowadays very touch, a very touchy subject, but people, you know, a lot of immigrants and people of Latina descent are like, wait, you want what I, the party part, but you don't want to give me my rights. You don't want to see right. what's going on. And I don't want to get too much into politics, but I mean, it's, it's, a, it's oh, ingrained. It's yeah. We get into politics plenty here. There's. <laughs> okay. Well, I yeah, we, we, yeah, we definitely see uh, part of our witchcraft practice as being very closely tied to social activism because, you know, part of our work as, as witches, however you define it, but I think that there's a common idea that we have to be stewards for the earth and for, for this planet and for the people who need support. And so, you know, it's, it's impossible to have a witchcraft practice that is divorced from politics, at least in the way that, you know, Becca and I approach it. Yeah, you know, witchcraft is very... Um approachable to politics, very nicely aligns with politics. There's a lot of, in the, in, the, in the book, what I write is not just about the spirit alliances that fuel your magic, but it's also about the kinds of magic that you can practice. And I'm, one of the most controversial topics that's in the book is hexing. I do talk about that. I do talk about hexing and I give some examples on how to perform it. And people have found that very controversial and, you know, saying, you know, very angry, you know, but what about this? And, you know, how could you do that? And I'm like, if you pick up any book that is done by academic and they talk about hexing in their book and how it happened, you're not going to tell people to stay away from that book. People, people are going to pick up a book and read it. And there's no point in having those safeguards that are not there for when you do a hex present by the academic. But in my book, I'm like, no, you can do this. This is how you do it. It's magic. There's no escaping it. People are going to use this. There's already enough books out there about hexing, about protection. And that's it. You know, even casting the evil eye is present in the book. When we first started the podcast, one of our first, maybe the first interview we did was with our friend Lauren, who calls herself a Bane worker that she does, you know, she does a lot of that work and she refers to it as a surgeon isn't evil for slicing out cancer. Mm-hmm. You know, even if you're, you know, depends how you're wielding the knife and techniques that are very much wielding a knife, the morality of using it really depends on what the goal is, not yeah, what the also- technique is. It works a lot better if you're trained in how to use that knife as opposed to just start cutting and see what happens. Yeah, so, you know, you're really going to kill somebody that way. So. Yeah. Right, like you should have a framework. And Becca, uh, you know, earlier you mentioned the idea of, you know, would Hera approve of abortion or whatever, but, you know, that's another thing where the reality is, is that that happens, right? Abortion has been around since the beginning of humanity. Part of the work of witches has been, you know, herbs for uh, terminating unwanted pregnancies, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, it's still the idea of, you know, these are things that are going to happen. So it's better if they happen in a safe medical environment as opposed to, you know, with a coat hanger. And so I, I think that speaks a little bit to what Oracle was saying, this idea that, you know, hexing, bane work, air quotes, ugly magic, it's still going to happen. So can we, maybe what we need to do is provide people with the tools to do it properly you know with the proper safeguards and safely as opposed to just you know again wielding that knife and kind of seeing what cuts yeah because if you're if you're not trained you can you this can be a lot of collateral damage and that can be other people that can be yourself it's not nice no and one of the things <laughs> that i i really push in, in my teachings is never surrender your personal power be empowered you know, you're going to do this, develop your, your conscience, you know, de- develop it because ultimately you just don't answer to the gods. You answer to yourself. You are your own compass and you have to be able to understand it. And the only way you're going to do that is to not surrender your personal power to anybody. And so this idea of empowerment really is rooted also in, in some of our deities in, in the, in the Strix Pantheon, like for example, Medusa, the Gorgons, the, the Ovid Roman version of it, where she is, Medusa is cursed by Athena because- Ovid's trash, I hate him. Ovid is trash. <laughs> I, I, I do not like Ovid, but in the Ovid, in the Ovid version, which is very well known and used in a lot of movies, is that Medusa was raped by Poseidon in the temple of Athena, and Athena cursed her because she, she allowed herself to be raped. And so she was cursed with ugliness until Perseus chopped off her head. Ovid wrote stories for entertainment. Most stories are. And he had some real issues with women. 
Yes, he had a lot of issues with women. And so the original story is that Medusa is the mortal of three sisters, three Gorgon sisters, and her likeness was used to ward off evil, to ward away evil and disease. And she is an immortal spirit now. You know, she was mortal. She's immortal. She died and she is now ever present. Her figure is and her likeness is used. So this is an example of empowerment. One example in our stories of empowerment. This is very, you know, personal gnosis, but I see uh, Medusa as a face of Athena. I see Medusa as the, I tried to reason with you, now the gloves are off side of Athena of like, okay, you asked for the atomic version and here it is. Yes. Yes, definitely. And I think that's one of the reasons why, and I have to remember my source on this one, but one of the reasons why um, the moons that were dedicated certain festivals, the dark side of Athena is considered the Gorgonian, that is the Gorgon, the night of the Gorgon, where uh, Medusa is Athena's demon. She's her, uh, it's Athena unleashed. So I totally, yeah, I totally agree with you on that. Yeah, this is making me think of uh, Hindu mythology and the idea that Kali, you know, fell from Durga's forehead in a fit of rage because, you know, she needed that extra, <laughs> you know, like rage and power. Uh, and so again, you know, that this is another place where we kind of see similarities in the ways that, you know, religion forms, even if they're in very different places. You know, you've already mentioned that there are Hellenic roots in India. I can't help but notice that parallel there. This is a bit of a topic change, but one thing that I wanted to ask about, because we've already mentioned that there are, uh, you know, similarities between, uh, you know, Wiccan sort of systems of, of spell work and magic and Strixcraft. But one thing that's definitely different that I wanted to ask about is the idea of miasma. Can you tell us what that means and how that plays into the practice? Okay, so so in the book, what I write is that it is not not pollution. And this is something I had to get in with the <laughs> one editor who was like, well, in classical times, this is how it's defined. I'm like, no, 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 no. <laughs> Miasma just means it's an energy that surrounds mortals. You're mortal. It's an energy that surrounds mortal because it's it has to do with us when it comes to birth, sex, and death. Those are the three um, cycles of a human, of a mortal, that keeps us separate because the gods, another name for them is the deathless ones. They don't touch death. They don't come near death. So we have to be able to approach them in a manner that is sacred. That is, we sets us apart in that moment for the gods. So miasma so, is like an impurity? Um, I wouldn't say the word impurity because that, that implies that there's something wrong with us. Mm-hmm. It is just mortal for me, the way I see it is it's just an energy that says it's mortal. For example, you know, you may have a cup of coffee and you have another cup of tea. The coffee and tea don't mix, but it's the same mug. You have to finish the coffee if you're going to prepare the mug for the tea. You know, the, the mug is the vessel. You're mortal. We have sex. We are born. We die. But then there's a period where we can prepare ourselves ritually to approach the gods for a different, complete different container, a different energy, if that makes sense. Borrow some new age lingo, unfortunately. It's about vibration. You vibrate mortal. And in order to align yourself with deity, you have to raise your vibrations. And by doing that, you do certain ritual prescription of washing your hands and washing your face and making sure you have hygiene, that you're presenting yourself properly to the deity or the spirit. And then you're in their presence for worship. A remarkably large amount of cleansing miasma is taking a shower. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So um, it's a lot of cleansing yourself from the gods is, will other people like to be around you right now is, you know, like, (laughs) it's a sign of respect, really, that you're, you're cleaning yourself off of, um, of you know the day's activities before approaching the gods. I do want to say, so you mentioned sex and in your book, you actually consecrate a lot of your icons um, by either using a drop of blood or by using sexual fluids. So how does that interact with this idea of sex being a miasma? It's not contradictory for me in, in Strixcraft actually, because 
sexual fluids when performed a certain way, they, I believe every part of us in Strixcraft, we are holy. Even though we are mortal, we, we can be set apart. We can be holy. We, there, there is no part of us that is not a part of the gods because also Strixcraft is rooted in the Dionysian mysteries of Southern Italy and Sicily. And in one aspect of the Dionysian mysteries, there is this idea that we are a mixture of divine and mortal energy. It's the mortal energy, the, the dross, that is really what we are being conscious about in cleansing. But for consecration of images and, and tiles, uh, sigils, in fact, sexual energy is used because it is also the root of magical energy sexual energy is, the raising of energy for ourselves, the, the meeting place, eros, the desire, you know, that he brings into us, that is a part of the cosmos, part of what we are, primal energy. The reason why is because miasma for what it is, is not a pollution, it is not evil, it is not a sin. Although you have hygiene, you're showering, you're washing your hands before you approach, you're using sexual fluids as a conduit a conduit to bless an image in order to activate it, especially the sigils. The sigils especially are what's activated. The sigils that I present in the book, the images, they are used in magic to connect with something primal. And when you're done, you just go clean up <laughs> and you're done. That's it. The, it remains. And also you cover it. In the book, I talk about covering it and keeping it away from kids and pets. You know, you don't want to, yeah, you don't, you don't want to leave something out like that, <laughs> that has, that has that stuff in it. But because miasma is nothing more than you just being immortal and preparing yourself ritually to approach before the gods, you can do that in the beginning. And then when you're in the ritual itself, in the magic, you work the magic, you work the fluids, you work the blood. And then when you're done, you go and clean yourself again, the, the veil is closed and that's it. Yeah, I mean, we did a whole episode on sex magic, right? And it's less about the act and more about the container that you're doing it in, right? Mm -hmm. And even though, you know, miasma is not part of, you know, my terminology and my practice, uh, you know, a lot of the things that you're describing are still sort of, you know, universal to, to, to esoteric practices because the idea of ritual baths is definitely very common, right? And it's part of the process of um, separating from the mundane and entering sacred space, right? It's those things like, first of all, you know, we're cleaning ourselves out of respect, but also it's these motions that we go through that signal to our brain that we're taking a break from the mundane to engage in magical work. And that's part of the process of moving your brain from beta waves into alpha waves so that you're opening yourself up for the magical working. So these cues that we take that we see happening in very similar ways in many different spiritual practices, the ultimate goal is the same thing, which is to delineate a difference between the mundane the profane, right, and the sacred, and helping our brains get to the right place so that we can most effectively do our work. Yeah, you know, erotic magic itself is rooted in, like I said earlier, eros, or mm -hmm. the, the workings of Aphrodite. You know, there there is presence for that, just like Hexene is from the Chthonic or the underworld deities themselves. And so different deities have different ritual prescriptions as well. You know, different deities, some, some aspects of deities will say, you know, you can't work this before you approach this. And others will be like, no, you can do this on my behalf. For example, animal sacrifice, although that's not practiced today in Hellenism, in ancient times, certain animals corresponded with certain deities and they would receive the blood, they would receive the flesh. Spilling the blood was considered for, for some a miasmic activity because you're exposed now at that point, you know. But it, it's, it's ritualistic. Mm -hmm. It is there. And so I think the, the, the question is, how do you utilize that time to raise your energy? Because magic itself is psychosexual spiritual. It has a threefold component to it, is what I've discovered in for me and for those around me. And so there are apparently exceptions depending on the ritual prescriptions from a specific from a specific deity or specific epithet of a deity. So for for our listeners, well, when you say epithet. There are, you know, in different traditions, in the Hellenic tradition specifically, there is the deity's name, and then they often have an extra word at the end of it, which is the specific thing that is going to, like, there's, um, and I forget the Greek word, but there is a Zeus of the cupboards, 
that you know yeah like zeus is a sky god the thunder god you know you know big sky daddy but he also guards your pasta (laughs) Um, and and there's a specific epithet for that and when you want zeus of the pasta that they have these um these specific epithets that help direct your call to the right aspect of the deity which is very large it is. I mean, there's multitudinous epithets. Some are shared by certain deities, but for me, how I define it is that it's a mask. It's a specific mask. It's almost like the modern equivalent of you wearing the hat. Your 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 personality at work, a personality at home, a personality with your parents, personality with your child, and it's almost akin to that, but much more complex. It's almost like there's different Zeus's. We'll use Zeus as the continued example. There is, you know, the, the Zeus of the the storm god Zeus. And he's completely different from the from the pasta Zeus. And <laughs> I'm just gonna one, keep using pasta Zeus. <laughs> we're gonna use pasta Zeus. And each one is gonna have different prescriptions on how to approach them and how to invoke them. But it's all Zeus. This is the beauty of polytheism. It's it's all Zeus. It's all Hecate. It's all Aphrodite. I just know? figured out who the flying spaghetti monster is. I'm just saying. <laughs> and 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 to combat that, we have the antipasta. <laughs> But um, no, you know, in my book, I talk about Hecate, but I talk about specifically Brimo, her Brimo aspect, her terrifying aspect, you know, that that side of her that, you know, is scary because many people are like, oh, she's a loving mother. She's this, she's that. I'm like, you know, that she's Brimo. She has a side of her that's very dark, vengeful and terrifying. And then, of course, uh, Persephone, you know, people just think of her as Kore and Persephone, you know, the maiden and the, the queen. Who yeah, the flower goddess. And I talk about Praxidiki, you know, the, the justice goddess, the goddess who in Lokri, who was proud to be queen of the underworld. And so she she gained her power and now she and she was a goddess of justice, a meeting out justice and making sure that society was under a specific order. So there's different, I don't use the words, you know, Aphrodite, Zeus. I always follow it. If you ever see my writings or ever see me on, on Facebook, I'll follow it with an epithet, with a mask that says specifically, this is the path, this is the version that I follow or I worship or that I, I connect to. And we're kind of getting into a deeper thing here because you're talking, you know, we've been talking about sort of these dark aspects of the goddesses and this idea that power comes from our shadow side. And I think that that's a thing that is really scary to beginners, but I think that it's, at least that's my, you know, my personal gnosis, I guess, is that it's, it, you cannot really fully tap into your power if you don't integrate your shadow side and explore that. And I think that that's true as far as how we do our devotions. Like we cannot pretend that the divine is all light, right? That's one thing that I think is a big difference from, uh, you know, my Christian roots and now with my paganism is that you can't only look at the light aspects of the deities, right? There's a package and there's two sides and often the power comes from that. And we even see that and Oracle, I didn't ask if you you do tarot, but you know, in the major arcana, we have that idea of you know the devil is the is the portal into that third level of the major arcana. That's the big initiation. You don't get to complete the cycle if you don't confront your shadow and don't look at the shadow side. It's true. Well, just for uh, purposes, I I do use tarot, but not for readings. You know, in our mythos, everything is Nyx. Everything starts with Nyx, the star goddess. You know, our power is in the dark, the screech owl, the night owl. Uh, for Strix, we gain power through the dark. And in the dark places, there is wisdom, there is light. That's where the source of our light comes from is the underworld. And so people think of the underworld and underworld deities and darkness as something evil, but, or something to be stay, stay away from, but that's our power. That's where we say, like you said, the shadow, uh, integration, personal power. You can't know it until you, you know, until you actually explore yourself in all your aspects in all your holiness. And that's something in Strixcraft that we really do emphasize is knowing the shadow, knowing the power and not surrendering it. So what would you say um, if you have any advice for you know folks who are beginners and who might be becoming interested in Strixcraft, if they want to start opening themselves up to working with their shadow and shadow duties, like what's, what's the first step in something that they should know or maybe something to help them be less intimidated? I think the first thing is to understand who Nyx is, to understand our goddess, to understand what blackness and darkness is. It is birth. 
And you can do that by meditating, contemplating on that myth. From her was born Eros and Thanatos, desire and death. And these are the fundamental powers of the cosmos which rule it. So, but in the book, I talk about how Eros is very much, he is the music of the cosmos and Thanatos is the, is the cutting of the cosmos, you know, and, I, and, I, and I'll, I'll get more into that. Like, in a, <laughs> it's a whole thing. But in brief, the first thing is you want to do the contemplation on Nyx and understand that you are holy in all your darkness. The second thing I want to emphasize, if you want to start, I want you to be able to say to yourself, okay, I need to acknowledge, but how do I do that? Well, there's two ways. The first one is therapy. A lot of esoteric orders emphasize therapy, but you need money for that. And so if you don't have the insurance or the money to do that, then the second thing I urge you to do is I really urge you to start exploring your own psychology. One of the books, if I can recommend a book that I know has helped me, is a book called uh, The Dark Mysteries. And it's written by an author by the name of Timothy Roderick. And Timothy Roderick is not a Hellenic polytheist, but he is a counselor by trade and he is a witch as well. And so his, his book is a wonderful tool to start from that. Unfortunately, as far as the shadow side, I really didn't emphasize that in this book. It was just a beginner. But Nix herself and working through your own shadow and going to therapy and, and journaling. Journaling is the third one. Journal every day. We talk about that in esoteric orders. Journal your thoughts. Journal your emotions. It's a mirror. Look back on it. What are your weaknesses? What are your strengths? Work on those weaknesses. Are you prone to anger? Are you prone to depression? Seek out medical help. Learn to balance yourself in healing and wholeness. You know, you have to admit your, your faults, your addictions, the dangers that you pose to yourself in order for you to rise up above. Yeah, I think that's great. And one thing that I've noticed that I, I really appreciate is that, uh, you know, contemporary practitioners are encouraging therapy more and more that's something that you know Lauren Deborah has brought up before in previous episodes we've talked about that and I'm so just sort of happy to see within the pagan world that we are talking about therapy is a really important tool right because what we're doing is not saying hey come do witchcraft instead of therapy right that's definitely not it this is a path towards healing but you have to do all the work and therapy is part of it like there's I honestly can't think that there's a better alternative out there today for really digging deep. I see a lot of times like in tarot circles, people say, oh, tarot is cheaper than therapy. That's what you've got, but it's not a good solution. It's a, it's a Band-Aid and, and you're bleeding a lot. <laughs> no, it's true. You know, a therapy is so important because we have so many issues. Witchcraft was not made, modern witchcraft was not made to teach people pastoral counseling. We don't have that. You know, we don't have congregations. You know, we have our own, it's sort of like a monasticism light being together and serving the gods. So we're not equipped. Many are not equipped to deal with those kind of dark shadow issues. You use it in conjunction. And when you work magic, when you work with the gods, the closer you get to the divine, the closer you get to yourself, the more inner you go, the inner space. And so a lot of stuff is going to be dredged up. I've had students who have dedicated to our temple and within not even a month they dropped out because there was so much that came to light about themselves. And they were like, I can't do this. I can't do it. So I have a lot of students that drop out by like the third month at most. That yeah, just it's can't hard. handle it. I, you know, I don't have a, a public temple in the way that you do, but I have worked with, you know, dedicants and initiates. And in my tradition, the, the dedication period, which is, you know, at least a year and a day is not so much to teach magic which is what people go into it kind of expecting but what it really is it's a whole system that's laid out to do shadow work to tap into your shadow and sort of aid that psychological process of you know looking at yourself seeing your weaknesses seeing your strengths seeing your prejudices and how that impacts the way that you move through the world and very few people get to the end of that because it is intensive and it moves you in ways that you aren't expecting. That gets into discussions that we've had before of closed versus open practices and initiatory paths. And I don't think that you can have an initiatory path that doesn't include that shadow work, but mm -hmm. you know, not everyone is looking to be initiated. So, you know, though there's, there's degrees of, of practice. There are, there are degrees and, but there's definitely like a call for even in your own personal path to get help. 
You know, it's one of the reasons also why, and, and this works also with modern, you know, in my book, I talk about several healing aspects in the healing chapter, but the final one I talk about is medications. You need medicine, you need modern medicine to work. I mean, many of our deities and our heroes in, in Helen Pantheism and in Strix, for example, Asclepios is the god or demigod of surgery, medicine, and doctors. There is no conflict between modern medicine, modern methods of shadow work and esotericism. And anybody who says otherwise, watch out for, <laughs> you know, yes. because we need the technology that the gods have gifted us with reason that we have advanced to help society. So you have a temple, right? You have dedicants. And so for folks who are interested in, you know, working with you or learning more about you, in addition to buying your book, Strixcraft, where else can they work with you? Like, how do they find your temple and get involved? Well, uh, I have a new YouTube channel where I upload some videos that I've done with the Unity Ministry. It's it's under my name on YouTube, Orco Hectaios. You can find it there on YouTube. It has my picture and it's got videos on there. Uh, it's brand new. It's a brand new uh, YouTube video, so it's not very fancy. And then on Facebook, we have the Temple of Hecate Ordo Sacrastrix, O-R-D-O-S-A-C-R-A Strix, Temple of Hecate Ordo Sacrastrix, the Sacred Order of the Owl. And they can find me there. They'll have information. Right now, our temple, because of COVID, is closed. But they can certainly reach out to me or any of the initiates that I, I can reach out to. We have initiates in New Jersey, Oregon, West Florida. Yeah, where so, are you based out of? I guess we never asked that part. <laughs> I'm based out of uh, East Florida, Central East Florida. So that's where I live. That's where I, uh, the beach is nice. Yeah, and they can certainly communicate with me through there. Uh, they can communicate through, to me through the Facebook channel. I do have an Oracle Hecatayo's author page on Facebook. It says my name dash author. And they can also reach out to me to email. My email is Oracle, O-R-A-C-L-E dot, my last name, H-E-K-A-T-A-I-O-S, oracleactaios at gmail.com. So I have read your book. I think it's great. It's great for the beginner, someone who's like looking for a path and like, how do I set up an altar? How do I set up a personal temple? And you really go through a lot of that information. So I think a lot, especially for our listeners who are looking to start a path and we did an episode very recently, just like, you know, what tools do you need to set up and stuff like mm -hmm. that? And you really kind of go into for your path, you know, what tools you need to do, how to step-by-step, step, how to set up an altar. So I think, especially for the beginner, it has a lot of that good information. And for my favorite chapter of it was the healing chapter. I'm, I'm glad you enjoyed it. I'm really glad, um, you know, hopefully we'll help others on their path, give them a name, a label, that's something that maybe has escaped them and lead them closer to our mother, Kate, and lead them closer to the gods. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you thank to you. our listeners for tuning in. As usual, you can find us at witchcitywitches.com. If you have questions for us, you can email us at askawitch at witchcitywitches.com. If you're enjoying this podcast, please rate and review us so other folks can find us. And thanks so much for tuning in. Thanks, everybody. Thank you.